Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, the echoes of the resignation of the Health Secretary continue to be felt around Westminster and beyond. Later today, the new man in the role, Sajid Javid, will address MPs about the extension of some COVID restrictions to the 19th of July. It's being widely reported that he is more willing than his predecessor to stick to that timetable. Well, earlier we spoke to Andrew Bridgen about the new health secretary. Andrew Bridgen is Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire and one of the leading Tories pushing for a rapid opening up. So I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic that uh, he has been a former chancellor and now he's going to have to uh, effectively be the poacher compared to the gamekeeper and he'll have to petition the Treasury for the money he's going to need to get through the backlog of uh, the waiting lists and deal with the explosion in demand for uh, mental health uh, uh, counselling uh, following the, the lockdown and the pandemic. So Andrew Bridge and their MP reflecting on the difficulties now facing Sajid Javid. But troubles may not be over for Matt Hancock because there were reports over the weekend of moves to deselect him from his West Suffolk constituency party. And Labour has now called for a formal investigation into claims that Hancock used his private email to conduct government business, including contracts with suppliers. Well, let's digest all of this with Bloomberg Executive Editor David Merritt, who joins us now. David, thanks very much for being with us today. First of all, is Sajid Javid likely to be a very different person, do you think, in the role of health secretary? I mean, he has in many ways, of course, some of the same challenges, but he brings with him a lot of a rather different background. That's right. And as Andrew Bridgen just mentioned, of course, he was uh, rather briefly, of course, but he was Chancellor <laughs> of the Exchequer himself. So he's had his fingers on the purse strings of government. And it's hard to imagine him being able to sort of shake out of that mindset in a way. You know, the Treasury is famous for, like, you know, tightening their belts and the person at the top. And look at the dynamic that we've had throughout this, obviously, with, with the Chancellor um, uh, try, Rishi Sunak trying to kind of rein in the instincts of other departments. And, you know, there's some big bills to come for the health department. You know, the, the mental health was just mentioned there. Social care is something that the government has put a lot of store in, some, um, somehow fixing this long-term problem of how to pay for old-age social care. And however way you look at it, it's going to involve ponying up a lot of money. So is uh, Mr Jabber going to be able to wrest that extra financing um, or is he going to have a different approach to, all, to it altogether? But then just coming back to the immediate issue around lockdown, you know, we're all hearing a lot in the, in the last couple of days that he's going to have a rather more liberal approach 
to lockdown. As you said, he's going to be uh, spelling that out this afternoon. We don't expect them to move that deadline sooner because there is a possibility he could do that. Probably going to stick with that July 19th date, but very much not minded to extend any further beyond that. And we can expect a full relaxation of all the rules to to allow all the economic activity in the country to pick up again. Mm, I wonder how it will work um, with Sajid Javid um, and uh, and of course Rishi Sunak because Sunak had some very warm words in fact when Javid left as Chancellor uh, sort of under um, you know in in some sort of fury at that time Um, but look just going back to Matt Hancock, should the Prime Minister actually have just sacked Matt Hancock at the end of last week? He supported him on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. The pressure really became enormous. It did, didn't it? But, you know, this Prime Minister isn't uh, huge on sacking people, no. is he really? And I think going back to some of his own sackings or some of the way he's lost some of his job in his career, perhaps that you, you can understand why. Look, he didn't sack Dominic Cummings last year when he was accused of breaking those lockdown rules. Many other his MPs have run into some difficulties and he has stood by them. Priti Patel, of course, the Home Secretary, is still there in her job, despite these allegations that, you know, contested, of course, allegations around bullying in her department. Um, but what seems to be the clincher here is this hypocrisy question, isn't it? That's what it is. You know, we're beyond the uh, times, aren't we, when a a minister would have to resign for having an extramarital affair. That seems to be not a sackable offence anymore, of course. But this hypocrisy that he was setting the rules and breaking them, um, that's what the public seems to turn against. And although the public had the same reaction to Dominic Cummings, and of course, uh, Boris Johnson stuck with him. With Mr. Hancock, you know, it's this is a kind of like the final straw, wasn't it, really? We've had a, a slow build of reasons why not just the Prime Minister should lose faith with, faith with him, but also the broader party. And that's what happened over the weekend, is that really it was clear that no one in the amongst the MPs, other members of the Cabinet, were willing to stick up for him. And at that point, um, the Prime Minister accepted his resignation. But, you know, accusations that Mr. Johnson was a bit slow off the mark on this. Look, he's not willing to be pushed around by these events, clearly. You know, remember, just a few weeks ago, we had Dominic Cummings calling for Hancock to be pushed out. And I suspect the Prime Minister felt that if he, had do, if he was doing that, he would, have, in effect, be admitting that Dominic Cummings is somehow still wielding power in Downing Street. And, of course, he's very keen for that not to be the case. But, David, I suppose one of the other aspects of this and what's been written about a lot was a sense that perhaps actually Matt Hancock was quite a useful figure for Boris Johnson as a kind of lightning rod almost, someone who could take some of the uh, problems away from him uh, and, and that if anything, if nothing else, perhaps that was the reason why Boris Johnson would want to hang on to him. Now, of course, that's gone. And Sajid Javid, by contrast, can come in and say, and if there's a complaint, well, I wasn't here when this all started. I wasn't the one who made these arrangements. So in a way, Sajid Javid's in a very different position. Yes, the, 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 the human shield theory, perhaps, with some of these, you know, who would have wanted Matt Hancock's job, let's be honest, over the past year? You know, there's very few governments or people in his position around the world, and you can call out the missteps and perhaps the um, some of the um, questionable statements to the public and MPs along the way, but who would have wanted to be in his shoes, really, as this pandemic swept across the country and across the world, dealing with things like equipment shortages, Um, running the health service in the way that he has to in the British system, you know, that he is ultimately responsible for it all and the and the the terrible death tolls all of these things so there's a bit of sympathy in there i think when you think about uh, matt hancock's performance 
over the past year. But yes, there is a strange convenience now, isn't it? We are emerging. Yes, we may be in a bit of a third wave here with the Delta variant, but we are, we are emerging from this pandemic and we are going to be unlocking the economy and perhaps having a fresh person uh, in charge at the health ministry. No bad thing from Mr. Johnson's perspective uh, at this moment in time. We knew there was going to be a bit of a reshuffle down the line. Um, and Mr. Hancock's name was banded around as someone who would be moved. And we know that Mr. Johnson didn't want to move him yet because of the furore around Dominic Cummings' recent outburst. But now maybe he's got the cover that he needs to make that change. And they can start to look forward to sort of post-pandemic issues with the health service rather yeah. than uh, what they've had to deal with over the last year. And I suppose also the example is if Sajid Javid can return, then, you know, perhaps Matt Hancock at some point in the future, one doesn't know. But anyway, uh, hold that thought. Tell me about Batley and Spen <laughs> by-election on Thursday. Does it cut through to voters? Yeah, this is a big unknown, really. And I think, you know, we can talk, um, I could talk for hours, obviously, <laughs> about this subject and, and whether it cuts through. You know, I think we've seen with the election of Mr Johnson that these kind of personal matters, uh, questionable, shall we say, don't seem to make a big difference. You know, voters, this is another one of these red wall seats that the Tories are going after. They're trying to steal it from the Labour Party. Um, it's going to represent, if they pull it off, another big shift, another brick in that wall falling. Do the people of that constituency care really about the health secretary, about whether he was sacked on a certain day or not? Or do they care more about some of those big ticket issues Mr Johnson likes to trumpet, that he got Brexit done, for instance, that the vaccination programme is beating the world and that we're getting more jabs in arms than in us. These are the sort of things that the Tories like to crow about in these constituencies and that have worked in terms of swinging voters in the recent examples. Um, but I would say this hypocrisy question, it does get people annoyed. And some of the reports that we've seen over the weekend of people on the ground in that constituency, people are slightly uh, frothing at the mouth about this and they're not happy. Does that mean they won't put their ex next to the Tory candidate on Thursday? Uh, you know, it's going to be close. The Labour Party, for what it's worth, don't seem to sound very optimistic that they're going to retain that well, seat. So we may have to see. I was going to ask you specifically about that to finish with, David, because if uh, the Tories don't get it, well, I mean, they can say, well, it was never going for us anyway, potentially. But of course, for Labour, this is huge. And a lot has been written about potentially if Labour lose this, maybe a challenge to Keir Starmer. Yeah, so, you know, I'm normally a bit loath to call by-elections really that impactful. But, you know, they're supposed to go the other way around, aren't they? Incumbent governments are not supposed to take them off the opposition. And if this, this would be the second one of these in just a few weeks. And really big questions have to be asked, particularly after the last few days that this government has endured. If they're still going to be taking seats off Keir Starmer's Labour Party, if I was a Labour backbench MP, I would be fearful for my job uh, when next the public uh, get to make a decision. And that's when you may start getting these questions asked. Look, Labour are not very good at defenestrating their leaders. They tend to sit on their hands on this. They're not like the Tories uh, in terms of turning over the leadership. But that, disaster, that result on Thursday, if it happens, would be a bit of a disaster. And I think questions would be asked. David, I'm just going to press you then. If there were that leadership challenge, very briefly, any names? Well, the one everyone talks about is Andy Burnham in Manchester, mm. of course, isn't it? There's a few hoops you'd have to jump through first. I mean, he's not an MP at the moment. Um, but he is somebody who is winning 
against the Conservatives in the north of England, in those traditional Labour heartlands. And he has had, if you can call it such, a good pandemic in, in the sense that people see him as standing up for their local interests. He wrested extra cash and um, uh, conditions out of the government um, and generally has increased his profile. So he's definitely one to watch. Mm. Um, many other people besides would be joshing. Remember, it was a fairly uh, large field that threw their hat in the ring uh, last time. Mm. Um, yeah. But, you know, the problem Labour have got remains the same, regardless of who you look at. None of them quite have the reach and the stature of, uh, of Boris Johnson. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And almost a third of companies that trade with the European Union said they suffered a drop in business in the six months since Brexit rules took effect. The Financial Times has been quoting an interview of a director's survey that 31% of companies that deal with the EU reported a negative impact on their business, while 6% saw an increase in trade. The survey also found that since the start of the year, 17% of businesses that had previously traded with the EU had stopped either temporarily or permanently. Pretty Patel will reportedly reveal a bill that will allow the UK to hold asylum seekers in Australian style offshore processing centres. The Home Secretary has opened talks with Denmark over sharing a centre in Africa. According to The Times, Labour has said that the plan is unconscionable. The financial watchdog has banned Binance markets from doing any regulated business in Britain. The Financial Conduct Authority says the exchange must make clear on its website and social media channels it is no longer permitted to operate in the UK. Earlier this month, the FCA revealed new figures showing 2.3 million Britons held Bitcoin assets. And finally, the Defence Secretary and six senior military commanders are self-isolating after the head of the armed forces tested positive for COVID-19. The chief of the defence staff, Nick Carter, was told to isolate for 10 days after testing positive for the virus and his close contacts were traced. Carter had attended a meeting with the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and other senior figures on Thursday, Roger. Now, Matt Hancock may have gone, but the government is facing awkward questions about his time in office. His alleged use of private emails when doing government business is something now, Caroline, that Labour wants investigated. And how exactly Gina Colladangelo was hired, first as an unpaid advisor and then a non-executive director at Hancock's Department of Health and Social Care last September, is also a source of questions. Well, joining us now is Kath Haddon, who is Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government. Kath, thanks so much for being with us today. Just first of all, what, in your view, was wrong with the process of hiring Colladangelo? Well, it appears she was first uh, hired as an advisor, but not a special advisor. This is a very specific 
role uh, in government. They're a political role, but they're operating as temporary civil servants. So there's contracts, there's a code of conduct and a lot of rules about how they can play a very political role um, and yet, you know, still have access to the heart of government. But she wasn't given that post. So we don't know uh, what the, the basis was for on what she was hired. She was supposedly unpaid at that point. But what access and influence did she have in government? And then the question of why then she was created a non-executive director. These are people who are supposed to be on the board of a government department to advise them on how to run the business well, how to improve delivery, uh, the performance of staff, questions like that. So they're normally people with a commercial background, but one that really relates to the department. And again, if she was operating more in the special advisor role, why was she given a different post? And she had, at one point at least, a parliamentary pass, which, as I understand, came from Lord Bethel, but Lord Bethel wasn't actually employing her. I mean, do we understand this process and how it happened? Well, it ought to happen that the person sponsoring them has a good reason for doing so, has a relationship with them, and there are various forms that you have to fill out to get a pass. Um, there have been attempts by the parliamentary authority to sort of clamp down on too many passes swimming around not least because of concerns about lobbying, especially recently with the revelations about David Cameron and his Greensill links. So it's quite a surprise that, that Bethel, who, who didn't have a relationship with her, was the one sponsoring her. Uh, it seems like it's a bit of a workaround for them. So again, there's big questions about the access she was given and the reason why um, it was felt that she needed to have this kind of influence within the department and, and across uh, Whitehall. And you've argued that this falls also into a wider pattern that you um, consider worrying. I mean, you, you've mentioned Greensill, Lex Greensill and Greensill Capital there. Just explain how that is um, and if it is purely something that relates to the Tory government. Well, there's two separate issues here. One is this question about how advisers are appointed in and conflicts of interest that they might have. And, and Lex Greensill uh, was, a, was an example of this. Uh, when, you know, uh, when the Cabinet Secretary, the current Cabinet Secretary, the senior official, was asked about why Greensill was, was given a, an appointment back in the coalition government, they couldn't find the contract. They couldn't find the reasons why he was given a post. So it suggests there's kind of a murky lack of transparency going on in how some people are being given some kind of advisory role into government that gives them great access and influence in government that they can then obviously use in their private dealings. And the ministerial code and various other codes will talk about conflicts of interest, but it suggests that people's interpretation of conflicts of interest is quite wide at the moment, and, and that's giving us a lot of scope for concern. Um, I think the second issue is is really about not just her appointment um, but also about the use of emails and questions there about uh, Matt Hancock and how he's been communicating with the department, whether or not records are being kept properly. And that might relate to Colodangelo's appointment, but it's also about the whole handling of COVID more generally. And what about email, which is which is which has seemed to be at the centre of a lot of this uh, these allegations about Matt Hancock? The idea that he was, I suppose, I mean. It, 
to the Tories, of course, the United States, the whole issue uh, with Hillary Clinton made that very clear about the importance of keeping email contacts within certain four folders or parameters, I suppose. But here in Britain, are ministers always supposed to use only the official email for deals to do or anything to do with government? Well, no, and this is what's quite surprising, because if you look at the Hillary Clinton case, um, you know, it was such a controversy and had such a big impact uh, on the presidential race that it's quite surprising that we're a bit more lax in this country. The guidance that ministers get says that they can, you know, there are times when they will be using a personal email account, but the onus is on them to make sure that anything done there, any communication is passed back to the department and is kept. And it's it's similar to the conversation we've been having recently about the use of WhatsApp and other messaging apps. And we've seen a lot of that coming out through Dominic Cummings. How are these being kept? How much of a, a trail will they provide to the future COVID inquiry? And are they, um, are, you know, ministers, senior officials actually keeping these records? Or does it mean that there's actually going to be a lot of gaps and a lot that we don't understand? Because mm. the onus is on people to keep these records. There's not a sort of strong system in place to make sure that they can't do it. Yeah, and also security questions. I mean, this sort of um, is tangentially related to this issue too. It was CCTV footage that prompted Hancock um, to resign. Um, who revealed it uh, and why there was a camera inside that, um, that minister's office, I suppose. Those are also questions that people are focused on. Yeah, and I think that is a really important one. I suspect what we'll find is that this was a bit of an anomaly, that for whatever reason there was a camera there, I think perhaps the office itself had been expanded and it had been outside. Um, I think obviously, ministers are all going to be concerned across Whitehall about have they spotted the cameras, do they know that they're there? And also, do they trust staff? Um, all the speculation about whether or not there were hidden cameras, it doesn't seem so in this case. But that suggests that there's a strong suspicion uh, developing across Whitehall about what is secure and not. Um, I think it, this is probably going to turn out to have been almost a classic leap where we normally see it as, as papers or emails being leaked out to the to a news organisation. But in this case, there just happened to be a camera at that point. And Hancock was extremely unfortunate that that was the one place that he chose to uh, engage in this activity. But it is going to be a wider concern for them if no one in the department was fully cognizant that there was one there and that they didn't let the minister know that there was a camera there, which is very surprising. I suppose overall, Kath, what comes out of this is a sense that lacks standards on all sides, whether it's lax standards of security or lax standards perhaps in terms of uh, having uh, measurable distance between interests or lax standards in terms of regulations letting people in and out. I mean... There's been a lot of talk about how perhaps standards have slipped in various ways under this government. Is there an appetite for tightening all this up, do you think? I would hope that that appetite is growing. And I think it is really important as the Institute for Government. I mean, that's one of the things that we are arguing at the moment is that the ministerial code needs to be tightened up, but also the process of upholding it. I mean, the code is there to stop this happening in the first place. People are supposed to understand that the rules are in place and that there's to avoid a conflict of interest, that they're to make sure that appointments are on basis of merit and are fair and are transparent. Um, and that should have stopped controversies like this happening in the first place. When they have happened, there then needs to 
to be transparency that we get to the reasons behind it and if there are problems in the code that they are tightened up. But yes, we have seen with this Prime Minister a reluctance to enforce parts of the code with Priti Patel. Obviously, his advisor, his independent advisor on the ministerial code resigned because of disagreements about whether or not she had been bullying staff. With Robert Jenrick, who was accused of having close business uh, relationship over a planning decision that was in his in-tray. Uh, there wasn't even any inquiry with that. And again, we see mm. the Prime Minister reluctant to hold uh, Matt Hancock to account in the, uh, over the weekend on this issue. So there does seem to be a bit of a problem here that you've got this code. It's not working to stop stuff in the first place and that it's not working to then make sure that people are held accountable when they do breach the code. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.